Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your hosts. I'm Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm in New York. You look like you're in blurry town. Where are you? I'm in New York also, but I'm in a different part of New York, uh, all the way in upstate New York near the Canadian border. There's a lot of poutine and French mm. French words everywhere. So it's a uh, very, very high up north. Cool. And thank you for making time for me and our audience to continue what we're doing midweek with Legal AF. And on this 30-minute episode, we'll focus on Justice Breyer, the confirmation process, and the shortlist to replace him when he finishes this term. And the affirmative action myth, unfortunately, Karen, that the Republicans have now latched onto to cloud and defame this pick even before it's actually made. Our president, <clears throat> President Biden, has decided, rightly so, that he's going to use this opportunity. It's, it's a once or twice in a lifetime opportunity to pick the first black woman in 230 years on the court, and bravo to that. And of course, the Republicans hate that and have attacked the pick even before it's been made as being a product of affirmative action. Um, so let's get down to the things we're going to talk about. Um, let's start with, I'll kick it off with the legacy of Stephen Breyer, because Karen, I found it interesting in all of the tumult about his stepping down and all their hand wringing about will he or won't he? You know, is it going to be like, unfortunately, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she's and it's going to happen so late that the Democrat doesn't get to make the pick, or is he going to step off? What's been lost in that shuffle is the legacy of Stephen Breyer and what he accomplished since being on the court appointed by Clinton in 1994. People just think, well, he's that old guy on the Supreme Court, but frankly, without Stephen Breyer many of the majority decisions that we hold dear in the last 25 or 30 years would not have been accomplished. At one point when Kennedy stepped down, there was even talk that it had become for a moment the Breyer court because he ruled in the majority decision on most of the term for about three terms running after Kennedy stepped down. And so the question that progressives have, like me, I think like you, is, do we just want a liberal to be selected to sit in that chair and we're content with losing six to three on every major decision? Or do we want somebody to fill the shoes of Justice Breyer and build consensus and do it? And he was a technical writer. He was not an eloquent writer. He's not Kagan's equal, equal for instance, but he was able to find consensus across the aisle and to turn what could have been six to three and seven to two decisions against him into five to four or seven to two decisions in favor of his position. And so it's not just about picking somebody, it's picking someone to replace him that can hold the intellectual heft, that has the intellectual heft to help forge consensus. And so we're gonna talk about each of the uh, major top five short picks and we'll get your opinion and I'll weigh in as to, is this the person to follow in the big shoes of Stephen Breyer or not? But let's talk about his legacy for a moment before, um, before we turn the page on his career. He is going to be staying for the entire term, which is a good thing. 
I want to, I'm here to tell people that's a good thing, not a bad thing. When the abortion decision in Dobbs versus Mississippi is yet to be decided and, and the opinion yet to be written, when affirmative action has now been taken up by the Supreme Court, uh, that's a good thing that Stephen Breyer, with his heft, with his 30 years of experience, with his gravitas, is sitting in the chair. Um, they're now going to, you know, Second Amendment issues have not yet been resolved. The New York case about concealed weapons. So I'm glad that Stephen Breyer is in the chair. And as you'll discuss in the confirmation section or segment of today's 30 minutes, the fact that he's going to stay till the end of the term does not mean that there's going to be a delay in the confirmation process at all. So nobody has to worry about the hand wringing. He's got to go and, you know, we hurry up. No, let him finish out the term, do the right thing. And we will get an appointment right behind it that will take his place when this term ends. The legacy of, of Stephen Breyer, because people forget this, Every major abortion decision affirming the constitutional right to an abortion in the last 30 years was authored by Stephen Breyer. Uh, we forget that in all of the run-up and all of the Texas SB8 issues, that if you look at his legacy, one of compromise, one of an alchemist converting opposition into consensus, uh, which is what we need, a person in his two memoirs that he wrote believes in participatory self-government that the called it what act, active active liberty right is that what active you liberty it? that's right not activist judges active liberty that the, that the constitution is a democratic document and that the role of the of the judges is to preserve that and and the battle you know who his battle mate was for 25 years on that court was was who Sco karen scalia one thousand percent. So the battle, the, the existential fight for the soul of the Supreme Court was really a battle between a friendly battle because they were friends and colleagues between Antonin Scalia, who was a textualist, who was an originalist, who believed you just looked into the minds of the founding fathers. And what would they do is the answer to every interpretation or construction of the Supreme Court. And on the other side of the continuum, you have Stephen Breyer, who said, we have an, a modern role, the judiciary. We understand that the country is split almost 50-50 on most social religious issues. But, that, but the role of the Supreme Court is to use judicial authority to bridge those gaps and make proper law under the interpretation of the Constitution. So that was a battle that went on forever. Karen, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just, I, I think I think you're 100% right. I think Breyer acknowledged, however, that that way of being a judge also has flaws because he, he encouraged the active participation of the, of the people in the court in addition to interpreting what the law is and interpreting precedent. But but we've seen throughout history that that can also be fraught with peril, right? Like the Dred Scott decision was one, I think that he, even he acknowledged that this, his active participation or active liberty by letting people participate in sort of what should happen, uh, what the courts should do, uh, that that can also lead to um, tricky and, and negative, uh, negative consequences. I, what, what I found really interesting, what I have always found very interesting is you think of a judge as not being political. You think of it as, as a lawyer coming up, you want a judge to, to call it like they see it, you know, call balls and strikes, as they say. You don't want them to have an agenda. You don't want them to have some kind of 
legislating from the bench. You want them to to be the grown up in the room, to to be able to look at the the advocates, if you will, who are who are advocating for one position or another, and interpret the law in a fair way. And so I've always found it surprising that you have such you have these. The smartest people in the land, you would argue, are the people in the Supreme Court. These are the, the, the smartest of the smart, the, the really, really um, most went to, to Harvard or Yale or Stanford. And um, they all, they're brainiacs, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the really smart ones in the room. And you would think, though, that they would all land in the same place if you're just interpreting the law. But people that you could end up on such wildly different sides of an argument. I've always found that really interesting and fascinating uh, because they aren't, shouldn't be partisan and they shouldn't be, uh, they shouldn't be legislating from the bench. And one of the things that, to get back to your point about what's going to go into, into this decision, if you pick, let, let's say, let's say Biden said, you know what, this is the moment. This is the moment I'm going to pick the most progressive, the most liberal and, and the youngest, because I want that person to be on the court for the next 60 years. Because, uh, you know, as, as we all know, they, they serve until they retire. Right. So that and would be let, so that would be Kruger. So <laughs> exactly. So right. so so you let's let's say that that that's what Biden Biden did. I would I would argue that that's not the smart move because then all you're doing is you'll have you it could be the smartest most qualified person, uh, however they're just going to be writing dissents for their entire for the entire time that they're a judge or at least until uh, ho- hopefully one day the balance goes back um, to be more balanced. But I, I think I think the most important thing is somebody who is a consensus who can bring uh, both intellect and consensus to the court and reason to the court. I mean, there are some there are some cases that are just bringing some very unreasonable positions. And I think bringing some some level reasoning to the court, uh, I think, is important. And I think I think many of the judges, surprisingly, even if they are, quote unquote, conservative or, quote unquote, liberal, in, at the end of the day, they are very reasonable and can often uh, come to consensus in certain matters and in certain cases. So I think it's very important here that a lot of people are saying he's got to pick the most qualified. And, you know, when you you use the term affirmative action as if that's a, a dirty word, as if that's a negative, it is very, you're not using it as a, as a positive, right? So So whatever it is, in addition to being the most qualified, the best, it also, there are other factors that go into that go into picking a judge and i think i think one of them is what you alluded to is this ability to continue the briar legacy and to bring people together and to bring the judges together and and really think about both what the real life consequences will be to their actions and try and build a consensus because the rest of us are the ones who who live with the consequences of what their decisions are I think I think Breyer was on the court long enough where he was able to experience conservative, and I'm going to use that term accurately, conservative restraint, which was exhibited by Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by Sandra Day O'Connor, all the way to what we have now, which is conservative activism. There's no other word for it. The very thing that the conservatives had attacked the Democrats, the progressives for, for years, which was judicial activism, is exactly what they're doing. There's no other explanation for why the court is calling up precedent, some of which is only five and 10 years old, and reevaluating it now that they have the numbers. 
Um, that is not the way the, the Supreme Court that I studied in law school, you studied in law school, is supposed to work. And if they want to be out of the political fray and they act and they clutch, they, they fake clutch their pearls every time somebody attacks them for being political. They spent the whole summer, most of them, on the lecture circuit uh, saying, we're not political, we're above politics. Well, then don't call up precedent like abortion that's been on the books for 50 years, like Second Amendment, like affirmative action that's already been decided. You're not supposed to reevaluate every five and 10 years Supreme Court precedent. The mores of the country haven't moved that far. So nothing has happened other than you got the numbers and that's not supposed to happen. So look, from, from Breyer, just to remind people, and then we're gonna move on to, and let you lead on confirmation process. He authored Steinberg versus Carhartt, 2000 case involving Nebraska, which upheld the fundamental right to an abortion. June versus Russo, which uh, also was a, uh, struck down a Louisiana law in 2010 that required abortion doctors to have hospital admission rights. He was on the leading edge of relig religious freedom in a 2005 case called Van Orden versus Perry, which allowed a um, uh, actual physical embodiment of the Ten, of the Ten Commandments to sit in Texas. Um, he uh, wrote dissents that were powerful in death penalty. He basically was one of the justices, most of them are, who believes that at least lethal injection is cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Um, and, you know, there is, there was no, because he's leaving, he's got one last shot with Mississippi versus Dobbs. There is no greater vanguard to the fundamental right to abortion than Breyer. And, and he's got big shoes to fill, which we will cover in the last segment on the short list. But let's talk about the confirmation process, Karen, and uh, because there's been a lot of hand-wringing among our followers and listeners about how does this work and, and what happens and, and what does the Senate Judiciary Committee do, all right? And what's the timeline for it? Let's, let's walk them through it. So uh, as everybody knows, the Constitution of the United States sets out three separate but equal branches of government in Articles 1, 2, and 3. And in Article 3 is where they talk about the judicial branch. And that's where the uh, Supreme Court of the United States, the process or the procedure uh, occurs. And it really involves all three branches. They really seek to involve the executive branch and the legislative branch in order to confirm and pick the judicial branch nominee. And uh, so the way it works is the president usually meets with the uh, various candidates on the short list, and then they pick somebody for the um, for the position, they then present that position uh, to the Senate. Usually, they consult with the Senate before announcing the person because really they want their individual to be selected, right? They they don't want to um, put someone on that's not going to be selected. So they try to to do a little bit of a vetting ahead of time with, with the Senate. And then they send it to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, the Senate and the House have committees, all many, many, many committees. And, and committees uh, have certain members that sit on them and, and certain committees are more prestigious than others and you get selected to be on the committee and people wanna be on certain committees and not others. And whoever's in charge of, of the ranking, um, I'm sorry, the ruling party is who chairs the committee and has the majority of members. 
So the Senate Judiciary Committee is the one uh, that that vets the candidate and and sort of does they kick the tires and they they look they read all the opinions and they uh, have an FBI background check and all of that and and who's the, the chair of the committee? It's uh, <laughs> you know. I'm going to go out and say that we need to retire the name Dick. His name is Dick Durbin. I think it's time to retire that name. And I'm happy to retire the name Karen, too, by the way. So let's go by Richard or something else. But his name right. is uh, Dick, Dick Durbin. He's a, a Democrat from Illinois. And um, he's the chair of the Judiciary Committee. And, and I think there's 20 or 22 people, yeah, on, there, uh, there, members. There's, there's 22 split equally, 11-11. Republican yeah, I, 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 I actually read that somewhere. But then when I looked yeah. at the members, it, it count them, it turns out to be 20. But so there's there's, I think, 22. I agree with you. And and basically they hold a hearing. And at the hearing, it usually takes on average three days for the hearing. Uh, usually this takes place approximately one month after the president uh gives the name because they spend a month sort of, again, preparing and, and, and doing their homework on, on the candidate. And the candidate themselves prepares. There's a lot of preparation that goes in. I, I have several friends who have uh, gone before the Senate for confirmation to be a judge. And there's, no, there's, a, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Um, and so there, there will be preparation on both sides. And um, also one thing I didn't know until recently that witnesses can also present evidence uh, on behalf of, of this nomination. And the candidates- well, Anita, Anita, Hill, Anita Hill was a witness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There you go, that's true. Uh, I guess I just never thought of it like that. I never, <laughs> until, until I was very young during the Anita Hill uh, process. So it's only thinking about it now that I've, I've been a lawyer for so long that it's just an interesting to think about that 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 you can have have witnesses and I guess I guess you're right um, you know same uh, same thing with a, with our, one of our recent confirmations as well um, anyhow uh, so the candidates questioned and then they vote and there's either a yes a no or I take no position um, that happens and that's a recommendation to the full Senate. Uh, and then the full then it goes to the full Senate and the full Senate debates the nomination and then they they vote. Now, it used to be that uh, the Senate was allowed unlimited debate, which is also known as the filibuster when it came to judicial uh, judicial appointments. And so what would happen is if somebody was being pushed through that somebody didn't that wasn't that people didn't like, you would you would be able to filibuster. And, and in order to get past a filibuster, you need a three-fifths majority or 60 senators, uh, which is also known as a cloture vote. But in April 2017, the Senate um, by Mitch McConnell changed the, um, changed the rule to, in order to get Gorsuch, uh, Neil Gorsuch, pushed through and nominated and lowered the requirement to a simple majority, which would just be 51 for Supreme Court nominations. And look, at the time, I, I'm sure, you know, at the time many people were unhappy with the fact that the rules changed, but you gotta be careful what you wish for because now it benefits us, right? Oh, now we're- you, li you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so um, they have a debate, then the Senate votes and a simple majority here would would win. And if who breaks, a tie, who, who breaks the tie, right? Mm -hmm. So, right. The vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, 
you know, she, she would be the one to, to break the tie, um, which is why, because, because the Senate is, is 50, 50, there's a hundred senators and there's 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. The reason the Democrats hold all the majority positions on the committees is because of the vice presidential tiebreaker. They, they're considered having a majority, um, but that's why it's so important that to get the, that you can't take a single vote for granted. And I I know that they're trying to rush through this uh, this um, process, which normally historically takes about three months. Although um, although Amy Con um, Coney Barrett only took one month uh, recently, they're trying to get get the Barrett treatment here for 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 Biden's candidate because. Any, first of all, the midterm elections are coming up in November, and there's no guarantee that the Democrats will hold on to the number of Senate seats that they have. They could lose some. But even more importantly than that, anything could happen. Somebody could be hit by a bus, God forbid, or you know, somebody well, could be sick. Let's get to more specifics. So let me, let me give our followers and listeners who's on this panel and, and some of their ages and some of their past um, personal health issues which are problematic. So on the Democratic side, besides Durbin, you have Le Leahy, who's pushing 90 and is from Vermont and is the majority ranking member. And although he's very good for progressive Democrats, he had a period recently where he took ill. And if you take ill and you're unable to vote, you, th there's one less vote. Um, the other person who's on the panel on the Democratic side is Dianne Feinstein, who's 90. So we have two people um, on there, and I'll just run down the list so people in the various states that are legal AFers reside will know how important their senators are. Leahy, Feinstein, White House, Klobuchar from Minnesota, and we'll talk about her in the shortlist issues, um, Coons, Delaware, Blumenthal, Connecticut, uh, Hirono, Hirono, Hawaii, uh, Cory Booker from New Jersey, Padilla from California, and Ossoff. Uh, yes, Ossoff, who, who had the, uh, the runoff election in Georgia. On the other side of the aisle, I won't name everybody, but Cruz is on there. Hawley is on there. He of the Jan 6 fame or infamy. Kennedy, the wrong Kennedy. Um, and Lindsey Graham, which we'll also talk about in the short list because he's got a pivotal role here. If this panel is going to vote to recommend it's going to go through, I think, Graham, and that, and then we'll talk about the shortlist related to that. So I thought one interesting little bit of factoid that I picked up in our research for today is that 20% of Supreme Court nominees have been rejected by the Senate historically. And the very first nominee made by George Washington in 1789 was rejected by the Senate. So it happens. It's not going to happen here. I do want to... I want to blow a little sunshine on this podcast because we've got a lot of people that are worried and stressing out about whether we're going to get this pick through in 37 or 40 days. And I'm here to tell everybody we are. We have the votes. They're going to do a process. It's going to be properly vetted. The Biden staffers are going to work closely with the Durbin and the Judiciary Committee staffers. They're going to vet the five or six candidates. They're going to focus on the one that Biden wants. And, they're, and if a couple drop off because of the vetting, uh-oh, somebody wrote an opinion that doesn't look so great. We're going to lose some votes on this one. They're going to turn to the easier candidate. And that person in the next 40 days or so is going to be confirmed with Kamala Harris voting in favor of it by this Senate. 
and then they will be uh, just awaiting their actual swearing in once Breyer steps down at the end of this term, that person will slide right in and slide right in probably to the clerks because that person will not have had time to to vet fully their own clerks to bring with them those all important Supreme Court clerks. They'll probably bring one or two with them from their current. Most of them are judges that are being focused on. They'll bring some of their clerks with them, but I assume they'll pick up Breyer clerks who had a two-year commitment and they'll use the Breyer clerks until the following term when they can pick their own. This is a very exciting time. Um, anything else on confirmation we need to cover or should we move on to shortlist? I don't think we can move on to shortlist, but really quick, uh, I also learned through this process, f- frankly, you don't have to be a judge to be a Supreme Court justice. You don't even have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a natural born citizen. So unlike presidential requirements, that you have a lot more ability to pick people. I, I just found some of those things interesting. I also found it interesting that the Supreme Court originally sat in New York when it was first created, and then it moved to Philadelphia, and then only yeah. you know, then after a while to where it is now in Washington, D.C. But so getting well, to the to, Well, before you leave, though, to your point, Kagan was not a judge. She was solicitor. Yeah. She was an acting solicitor general for a period, but but Kagan was not a judge before she was put on to the. Uh, she had her uh, judicial position uh, blocked for a while and never made it to a bench. Her first time being a judge. Talk about talk about great great uh, results. Her first time as a judge as a U- U.S. Supreme Court justice. I, look, I, I, you hear a lot of people who talk about this promise that Joe Biden made to pick a black woman as an affirmative action pick. But I but I would I'd flip that. What what is the qualifications to be a Supreme Court judge and what are people looking for? They say the best person, the most qualified. Okay, but what makes somebody qualified? What makes someone the best person? Some people would say judicial experience. Some people would say um you know, it just dep- I think it just depends on on kind of where you're coming from. And I just want to say that, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think the person who I would like to quote here uh, is Lindsey Graham, who was talking about uh, Michelle Childs, who is one of the shortlisted people and the person that I am going to say is probably going to be the nomination. That's the person I'm guessing. And Lindsey Graham says that Michelle Childs, who we'll get to who she is in a minute and what what her qualifications are, but I I just want to set the table. This is a a Republican saying Michelle Childs is qualified on every by every measure. One of the most decent people I've ever met. I can't think of a better person. Okay, fair minded, highly gifted, highly qualified. Put me in the camp of making sure the court and other institutions look like America. She is not a, an affirmative action pick if you pick her. So I, I think, first of all, I think coming from Lindsey Graham, that should show a couple of things. Number one, here we've got a consensus person. You've got a consensus candidate. You've got someone who's willing to cross the aisle and reach across the aisle and say, this is a great candidate. But what I also thought was interesting is, is you've got a lot of people, conservative people out there saying affirmative action um, candidate. And I think he put it perfectly that we should make sure that the court and other institutions 
look more like America. And I think that does make you, that is a qualification. I think there's so many brilliant lawyers out there and brilliant judges. And I mean, just with an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of the law and the law and the ability to analyze and interpret the law, but might not have a lot of life experience or might not have great judgment. I mean, there are other things that go into what would make you a great judge. And you can't possibly say that you as a white man, Michael Popak, who walk around the streets every single day and you interact with people, that your life experiences are identical to someone who walks around every day who's a person of color or a woman. I mean, just people will react to you differently. Just the mere fact that Biden saying, I'm going to pick a black woman, people say affirmative action. I mean, if he were to say, when, when Ronald Reagan said, I'm going to pick a woman, did, was, were people saying anything about that? No. Oh, because, we lived, because, because we lived in a different political time where nominees, even like Scalia, got confirmed 98 to zero. And we don't we don't live in those times anymore. But I, we also, but I also think it's an acknowledgement that the minute you say that you that you talk about a person of color, that automatically people don't say, "Well, okay, for sure, that's going to be the most qualified." Automatically, people say somehow they are less than. Somehow this is affirmative action. Somehow you're not going to find yeah. the most qualified person it, and a person of color. And I, I just find that that kind of it. it yeah, it's a racist dog whistle that they've been blowing for a long, long time. It is, I'll use a Yiddish phrase, it is a shonder, it is a shame, it is a black mark that this is in 2022, that we're even talking about the need to appoint the first black woman in 230 years. We should be talking at this point about the fifth or sixth, or not even be talking about the fact that a person of color is being appointed or not appointed. I mean, back in the old days, they would talk about, well, Thurgood Marshall was black. We better put another black person in there. It's the black seat. So that's how that's how Clarence, that's how we got Clarence Thomas. Or when or when Sandra Day O'Connor left and it was and they were replaced when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg left, the woman's seat. You know, I, I'm so tired of the seats, but if we're going to elevate somebody, and there's so many qualified people and so many people to say that. We should always pick the best and the brightest. And therefore, the best and the brightest was Brett Kavanaugh. The best and the brightest was Clarence Thomas. The best and the brightest was, you know, Amy Coney Barrett. Amy Coney Barrett was one of probably 50 people that were qualified for that job, including many, many people of color and different sexual orientation. So for the Republicans to say, oh, we only stand for judicial competence and it must be an affirmative action pick that he's picking a woman of color is just a dog whistle to their base, um, which is disgusting, which, you know, you and I and others that follow us should be against. Of course. And of course, the person should be the best and the brightest and the most qualified. That goes without being without saying but there are, as you just said, are so many people that are the best and the brightest. There is no one best. There's no sort of Albert Einstein of, you know, of, of judges to, to my knowledge, right? There, there's, there's, it, it's a lot of different things and you want different perspectives and different life experiences because so much of what they do is not just legal interpretation, but it's also judgment. And so I, I think, I think people should consider in the future having an Asian individual per perhaps also be on the court or an LGBTQ yes. 
person on the court. I think those are factors that should go into uh, into consideration when thinking about, uh, you know, maybe someone who's not either Jewish or Christian slash Catholic on the court, right? I mean, I do think it's important that that the court be more diverse. And I think, as, as you pointed out, and as, as lots of people are saying, and as Lindsey Graham is saying, my, my new favorite person, at least for right now, for this one moment in time, uh, it should look more like America. And I think Biden, it's not about being a campaign promise. It's about recognizing the obvious. And the obvious is that it's absolutely time for a, a woman of color. And, well, the, and go ahead. The balance to Lindsey Graham is because he is Machiavellian in his decision making. It's not because he just really likes Michelle Child. He knows, and this is credit to um, the fact that we're in power at the moment, he knows that he's not going to be able to stop the freight train of Biden picking a black woman. That's he's already, Biden has said he's going to do that. But Graham wants to be the kingmaker and decide which black woman, and he knows her. He's met her. They're from South Carolina. He feels comfortable with her. I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. He doesn't know Katenji Jackson. He doesn't know Leandra Kruger. He doesn't know, um, you know, the rest of the candidates who we're going to talk about before we're done here. But, you know, and, and so he's jumping on the train before he gets run over by it. But his vote is really important because he's one of the 22 on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And if he gets on there, and then you have, you know, let's be frank, um, as we continue to talk about childs, then, then I want to move to the other two of the short list. Um, you, you, you also have Clyburn and Biden. It would not be president today. There's no doubt about it. If he had not won South Carolina. And, yeah, if the, and Clyburn and if the, was responsible for that. You know, and, he delivered. And Clyburn said, don't praise me. Deliver for me. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to pick Michelle Childs, hopefully Justice Childs. But let's turn to uh, Katenji Jackson uh, and um, and uh, Leandra Kruger, because those two are also very well qualified and on the short list. You want to start with uh, Katenji, ja uh, Katenji Brown Jackson? Yeah, so so Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson, she's, uh, I think, 50, 50 or 51 years old, um, many legal scholars believe she is the front runner for just from qualification. She's currently a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which has long been considered a pipeline for the Supreme Court. And it's the, it's the appellate court that feed at the appellate court level that feeds the Supreme Court and it's located in DC and it's it's a very important circuit court. So so that that's one reason I think people believe uh, she's a front runner. She's also uh, double Harvard, unlike um, unlike uh, Judge Childs, who we just discussed, who went to state schools. She's not Ivy League. And Duke uh, University for her LLM. <laughs> smart as so I'm not saying she's not brilliant, but she's more of a public school person and uh, and Judge Jackson comes up sort of more traditional Ivy League the way the other um, candidates. She's also uh, sort of unusual, has an unusual background for a Supreme Court uh, justice. She brings professional diversity in addition to um, diversity uh, by being a, a Black woman, which she was a former public defender. And I do think that that perspective, and not just because I come up in the criminal background, criminal justice background, but I do think that's a very important perspective to have. And I think that that's a good, that'll, that'll be really good for the court to, uh, to, 
to um, to have someone with that background. And she's also been she's also used to handling big cases. Uh, she uh, she was the she was the judge that handled um, some of the the Trump January six disclosure cases uh, on appeal. The National Archive. The, the National Archive case. Yeah. So she. Yeah. I, I think she's. Um, I think she's. I would have said she was my top pick until the until Michelle Childs, when I saw kind of the consensus building that I think she will bring to the table. Um, and so now I'm, I'm going with with Michelle Childs as as my top pick. Yeah. But I'd say uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is my second or yeah. or before tied, we, uh, tied yeah. for first. Yeah. I, before we leave her. So I, I liked her a lot. I liked I, we, we on legal AF with Ben. Micellus, we spent a lot of time talking about her decisions in the National Archive case. She's super bright, as you said, DC Circuit Court of Appeals is, is often a feeder program directly into, um, into the Supreme Court. She's a Florida person. She went to Miami. She graduated from Palmetto High School where Jeff Bezos went. Uh, and she, like you said, she brings other aspects of life experience diversity that's important. And and let's talk about age for a minute. She's the right age. Supreme Court justices, they like them to be in their 50s, maybe in their late 40s, uh, because, you know, presidents want a legacy and want these people to be on for 20 and 30 years or more. That's why when you get to about 60, and Merrick Garland was sort of on the far end when he was nominated. Of course, he was, he was, he was blocked by Mitch McConnell, but he was on the far end anyway. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually on the far end of it as well in that historic pick. But uh, I liked her a lot, and uh, as you said, and I still like her, but I, but I think with Lindsey Lindsay Graham blowing that dog whistle of, of to get his people supporting that candidate and, get it, and giving some cover to some of these nutty Republicans that are claiming it's an affirmative action pick, I, would, I agree with you. I think Childs is, the way to, is, is probably the, 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 the path of least resistance to get a nomination passed. Now, let's talk about Leandra Kruger, who is the youngest of the candidates. She was the youngest California Supreme Court justice at about 37 or 36. And now at 45, she'd be one of the younger of the Supreme Court. You want to talk about Leandra? Yeah, so she was she went to Yale Law School. Um, she was the editor in chief of the Yale Law Review, which is uh, for, for anyone who didn't go to law school, a law review the law review for each law school, you have to either um, grade on or write on to it, which means you have to be really, really smart and really good to be selected and chosen to be on law review and it's considered very prestigious. And then to be the editor in chief of the prestigious law review is is sort of a, a huge badge of honor. So she's she's very smart. And the first uh, black woman to ever be the editor in chief. Yes, that is true. She's the first black. So, so, so she is really smart. Uh, she was a former clerk um, in the Supreme Court, and um, I, in fact, wait before we. I, I forgot to mention uh, Judge Brown Jackson clerked for for uh, for, for Breyer. Breyer. Yeah, That's which right. so, um, but uh, but um, Leandra Kruger, she um, she was a former clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens. She's considered more moderate. So she would be sort of a middle of the road pick. She's known to be cautious and deliberate. And uh, in general, I think she's 
be an excellent pick. I don't think we'd go wrong with all three of these picks. I mean, none of them are lightning rod, super progressive kind of, I think all three of them could be excellent uh, consensus builders who could, I think, make a big difference and they'd be excellent picks and are imminently qualified and excellent and certainly the best of the best our country has to offer. And anyone who would say otherwise for these three picks, I think, uh, I, I can't imagine that they would say that, certainly with what we know now, but that's what the confirmation process is for, right? You never know what could come up in the confirmation process. Had it not been for um, Justice Thomas's confirmation process, we wouldn't have known about Anita Hill, right? Or, you know, so, I mean, it, it does come up, um, you know, it does come up these, uh, these dark skeletons in people's past, you know, hopefully they don't have any and, and sort of kick the tires. And, and I think we'll all, I'll, in barring kind of anything crazy that comes up, I think these three are phenomenal picks and we, we couldn't do wrong with any of them, but my money, if I was a betting person goes first to child, second to Brown Jackson and third to Kruger as it's just, you- who's going to, who's going to be the pick. I think you have it exactly right. Well, we've reached the end of another thought-provoking and timely midweek edition of Legal AF with Michael Popak and... KFA. (laughs) By the way, on that note, I did not name you KFA. Some people thought, it's insulting. You're calling her KFA. That is a nickname you've earned in your life. That that close friends call you that. It was actually, it actually came up professionally. I think mostly because my last name is such a handful and so hard to pronounce and no one really knew how to do it. And I I didn't ever call myself KFA until the name Karen became kind of a negative (laughs) pejorative kind of term. And so now I, I used to, of course, I mean, it, it was a term of endearment and, a, and something that I, I, I appreciated and I thought it was funny. But now I, 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 I embrace it because I, uh, I'm happy to retire the name Karen, too. So You're, you're our favorite, Karen. So join <laughs> us every Wednesday when we do a deep dive and analytics about a cutting edge legal and political issue. And uh, of course, uh, every weekend, join my co-anchor, Ben Micellis on Saturday night and Sundays for the regular end of the week roundup of the top dozen or so legal and political news stories. We do it on YouTube and then we launch it on all the pod platforms. So signing off, see everybody this weekend. I'm Michael Popo.